Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Biotech 2050 and BIOS podcasts. Today, we're partnering together to launch our first joint podcast episode. We're thrilled to collaborate to help expand the discussion of innovation in the life sciences industry. My name is Alok Tai, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Biotech 2050 and also the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite. And my name is Eric Tai. I serve as the head of content and community at BIOS, and I'll be helping to co-host today's podcast. Hi, I'm Rahul Chaturbedi, the other co-host of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm excited to welcome Yizing Dong from Global Founders Capital to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today, Yizing. Great to be here, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Yijin, first for joining us. Yijin, you're currently a partner at Global Founders Capital. Can you give us some background on GFC and what your investment focus is? So GFC, Global Founders Capital, is a global seed and growth stage venture fund. We are actually a fund started by entrepreneurs investing in breakthrough entrepreneurs throughout the world, hence called Global Founders Capital from that standpoint. We have about 15 offices around the world now. And even though it's a relatively large size fund and we do invest in allocate capital towards large growth rounds, I actually spent almost all my time in really early stage opportunities and talking to startups across the pre-seed and C-stage who are bringing cutting edge technologies to life sciences. Right now, the bio team is relatively new, but we have back companies across AI drug discovery, drug development, automations in synthetic biology, as well as various food and ag tech applications, innovations, and some life sciences tools as well. Great. Thanks, Susan. We'd love if you could share your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I'm an immigrant to the country, like many of us. My parents and I moved to a town called Maryville, Tennessee, which is outside of Knoxville. And growing up there, because we had a family restaurant, my dad wanted to pick a place where there was not a lot of competition for Asian food. And that's where we, we stayed. Forced me to learn English really rapidly and eventually helped the family settle down and, and call that our home. I went to Vanderbilt for undergraduate. Uh, and then after that, I came out here to the Bay Area to start my career in biotech. What I initially doing was I started helping biotech companies as a consultant to really understand how their drugs are being prescribed in the clinic by talking to physicians and patients, as well as prioritizing pipeline in the clinical development side. Ultimately, went in-house to Genentech to really support the launch of Avastin, which is an anti-VEGF drug in ovarian and cervical cancer indications. It was really cool at the time, well, at least I thought, I was at the forefront of mostly newly approved therapies, especially in cancer, and thought I was really widening assets of these innovative therapies to patients across the U.S. Then, unfortunately, my grandfather was diagnosed with late-stage lung cancer. It was incredibly frustrating to me because I know all the best treatment being at the forefront of these therapies, but I just could not help because there was a lack of access to innovative therapies and coverage because he was in China. It was a really wake-up call for me Then I realized that you know, many other cancer patients in America, as well as the rest of the world, do face the same challenges, access and costs through the healthcare system. So then I decided to go back to business school and transition my career to understand healthcare system on a larger scale and really understand the incentives of different stakeholders that affect therapeutic innovation and access to care. And since then, I thought that the best way was to learn through early stage innovation and through the finance background from business school. Venture capital was a really attractive route for me to go into where I felt like I was at the forefront of the cutting edge innovations that address a wide variety of healthcare challenges. 
So I started making investments into both digital health and as well as computational biology startups five years ago, learning a ton and then still learning a lot every day. Awesome. Thanks so much for that background. It certainly sounds like a quite a storied career so far. You know, given that you've spent a lot of time at this really interesting intersection of health and biology and technology, maybe for the folks who are perhaps early stage entrepreneurs who are listening to today's podcast, any chance you can give us a sense of your approach and how you sort of think about investing in a company, how you prepare given the variety of innovation that's happening, et cetera? Yeah, happy to. I think all of us agree that in this job, we are you know, really having the privilege of talking to these hardworking and risk-taking entrepreneurs every day and see a variety of innovation to see which one could be truly transformative. The definition of innovation, right, to me is something that doesn't exist currently. There needs to be a learning curve to be up to speed to understand for a way of, uh, for a particular company, what is really the risk and reward. And each company has these different types of risks. Uh, and my approach to any new investments and new conversations is to really understand deeply what type of risks I'm underwriting because they are different for every company. And then how can I quickly remove those risks perhaps after investing or, or throughout the, the company's lifetime? Just a quick follow-up to that. Uh, when you sort of look at the investments that you've made, given that many of them are sort of on the biotech and the healthcare side of things compared to tech, it's harder to iterate and innovate and pivot perhaps in the drug discovery space compared to say a conventional technology company. Curious if you could just share maybe an example or two from your portfolio of folks who have perhaps done that well in the biotech and health space, uh, and maybe any best practices you can share for those who might be thinking about something similar. Absolutely. That's a great question. And I think it feeds into some of the, the topics that we're going to discuss, especially as we're seeing more of these technology-driven companies going into biotech using very much tech tools, right, such as computation automation. And one example I can bring up is we invest in a company called Afibio Machines. They are using high-throughput robotics as well as AI models to really design and find novel enzymes for various type of applications, starting in generics manufacturing. And that the thesis is, is exactly what you said, Logan, that biology experiments used to take really long in terms of the build test and, and, and design build test and, and kind of the feedback. And what these next generation companies are doing, which I find really exciting, is that they're now leveraging technology in terms of the AI in silico help you design more rapidly in throughput. And then you have robotics to help you test these hypotheses in a very, very massively parallel fashion at scale. And then when you increase that throughput, and then you take the result from these high throughput experiments to feed into a new version of design, right? So you can see this cycle becomes a lot faster and faster, and therefore the hypothesis that have faster throughput, similar to kind of what, what we talk about in terms of the tech side, you break fast, you learn, and you do it again. That will lead to higher success for better products in the end. And that's something that we're actually really excited about and seeing this conversion of trends from both the technology side as well as the life sciences side, the tools that they can enable these high throughput iteration of experiments. That's really exciting to us. Thanks so much for that, Nijin. That's, that's really insightful. And something that we at Alix are really excited about is this continuing convergence of computational technologies, robotic automated platforms, and traditional biotech. And I think as we're seeing more of these kind of innovations unlock from this mutual convergence of all these different fields coming together, some big questions start to arise. And there's a lot of hype associated with the convergence of these fields. As an investor, how do you separate the hype from the real value? And more specifically, I guess, my question is, how do you determine platform product or platform disease fit? 
what are you looking for in a company that truly shows you these folks have figured out how to extract value from these very broad ideas? That's a really good question, Eric. And there's a lot behind that question I can see. In your comment about what's the hype from the genuine promise, perhaps that we see, right? And how do we really identify those? And then and I'll answer your, your platform disease fit later too. This is a really challenging question to answer, actually, because I feel like our market is uh, getting very frothy from the computational biology, uh, AI drug discovery side at this day and age. And there are many funds that are now going after this intersection of technology and biology that I feel like some of those companies that may need more help or more de-risk before getting now lots of funding options and they're getting funded from that, from that standpoint. And I understand there's a lot of capital to be made in therapeutics, especially, but you know, without the proper diligence, you effectively buying a lottery ticket. I can always say, you know, what separates the hype from genuine promise is that you got to really understand what you're investing in and the promise of the technology of the approach there. Of course, you can always say do more diligence, but ultimately, I think it comes down with the experience of seeing why some companies succeed and why some fail in our sector. And, and this is something that we are continuing to learn as we see this new generation, maybe perhaps the first generation of these computational biology, AI drug discovery companies are now IPO going public with the likes of Schrodinger, Recursion, you know, Zymergens of the world, Upseller as well. Now, success cases that you know, younger companies can replicate their business model around with any new technology. With your question about platform disease fit, I think that's also a really good segue into a discussion of kind of what we see in this market. There are now companies that are coming up with really novel, interesting computational tools that apply to you know, help you find new hits, help you finding optimized drug-like properties, help you find the right new targets to go after, as an example. All these are really cool tools that add to the existing drug discovery, drug development value chain to a certain extent. And there is now a subset of companies that are saying, hey, we have a platform now that we can use these tools to really meaningfully help biopharm partners finding better targets, finding better hits, but help them better optimize, et cetera. And that's very valuable. And I think there's a lot to be learned by working with these seasoned biopharma companies on how they do things and eventually you know, leverage the insights, even data set to even improve your technology from that standpoint. Ultimately, though, I do think that the value of the company reside in the product that you have ownership in and less so of a services model. So we're now seeing companies where they are now iterating on products internally using their tool and then use that as a partnership angle, a licensing angle to discuss with biopharma companies, even to the extreme of the traditional biopharma route where they are going after clinical development themselves, so internal preclinical clinical development on their own to further capture more of the value that you can see as you push the product further, further downstream in the development cycle. So I think all those are very viable uh, business models and very viable strategies to go after. I do think that in my conversation with startups, we not only look at the, the platform side, like what kind of value does your technology bring to the current drug discovery, drug development workflow, as well as your internal product development side. So whether that be you're making an antibody, you're making a small molecule, even a car on a car T, what is that initial disease indication that you think that your product will be best suited for? And you know, putting the therapeutic investor hat on, what's the hypothesis that given your approach in generating and developing this drug candidate, that it will lead to better clinical efficacy and safety? And that's what we need to underwrite on. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ejen. That's, that's so insightful. 
So you were an investor in a, in a couple of companies in this tech-enabled drug discovery space. Specifically, you're an investor in Deep Genomics, which recently raised a $40 million Series B finance round and announced a preclinical collaboration with Biomarin in 2020. And additionally, you also invested in Vela, which has raised just over $400 million from investors. Can you speak to your investment in these companies and what got you excited about them? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for giving me a forum to talk about my portfolio companies and, and the market on their behalf. As you guys know, the drug discovery and drug development process is a multidisciplinary process and it's very complex. From the technology standpoint, just generally speaking, to me, a technology that finds you more hits may not be as valuable as a technology that can help you do multi-parameter optimization of your drug candidate, right? That's where the most of the bottleneck are in the process. Velo is a really exciting company, especially because they are innovating across almost all steps of the drug discovery, drug development value chain using AI tools and not just solving one problem in the complex chain. They have unique technologies in finding novel targets, coming up with molecules and silico that are synthesizable and with the ideal drug-like characteristics. So like a lot of the optimization can be done right now using computers. And they even have models that can predict and optimize clinical development success by looking at what's currently available in clinicaltrial.gov and all the trials that have failed and succeeded in the past. And this allowed them to tune various type of trial parameters, right, for their own asset such that you know, they will only pursue that particular clinical development if it has higher probability of success, or they can change the parameters such that it will increase the probability of success for their clinical development. And Deep Genomics is also really exciting but different company where they have AI models that can find novel targets in the rare genetic diseases around. And not only that, they can also come up with initial drug candidates, algonuclear therapies that can go after these diseases all in silico. So it leapfrog a lot of the new target discovery aspect of work and then initial hit generation type of work for the rare diseases population. I say that you know, I'm very excited by technologies that are solving big problems that could transform the whole industry or even creating new industries rather than solving a very small piece of, of the problem in the drug discovery, drug development workflow. That's pretty interesting. You know, it sounds certainly like your portfolio, not just uh, thinking about it in terms of single assets or platforms even, but just sort of holistic rethinking of the system of drug development and sort of how those different pieces come together and in short circuit, perhaps uh, to the benefit of the public. You know, one of the other areas that I'm curious if you see an opportunity is adjacent to the drug development space, which is industrial biotech. Obviously, we've heard a lot about synthetic biology, and it's certainly been around for a few decades, but perhaps at least has yet to hit the mainstream in areas that perhaps were promised, let's call it 20 or so years ago. Curious if you could just give us a quick overview of what you're seeing in that space, what opportunities exist, as well as maybe what some of the companies that are in the portfolio are active there. Yeah, sure. Look, and industrial biotech is, is a really exciting space. And I think it's one of those areas where it's a lot easier in a sense of not being as stringent regulatory requirements, right, right, compared to a therapeutic type of company. And you can perhaps capture revenue a lot earlier than going through this clinical development asset that, that these therapeutic companies have to go through. And that's why it has attracted a lot of different interests and excitement to this space, entrepreneurs and investors alike. I first got into this space about five years ago through an investment in a company called Ginkgo Bioworks. Uh, and that investment was made by my former manager and mentor, Shelly Zhang. She's one of the best investors I work with. And through that involvement with that portfolio company, I study how, what success looks like in this space, both from the technical side, as well as from the business side. As we know now, high throughput high biology is certainly a very hot trend. 
and have very meaningful value uh, propositions with what we just talked about, increasing experimental throughput, high quality data collection, and eventually insight generation and new product development. All of those can be enabled by, by these type of technologies. A couple of companies that can talk about uh, that really demonstrate this is the first one's called Synthase. It's an innovation, really innovation on the software in combination with some of the hardware side to automate biological experiments. So instead of having scientists going to the lab, they can just push some experience through their iPad, which is then connected to their equipment to execute in the lab. And then not only that, the data they will generate captured by these machines will be all standardized and have very high quality. So you can imagine there's a treasure trove of these data that could be mined on and used to further optimize your experiments and optimize your product. And then the other company that I may have briefly mentioned is a company called AetherBio Machines. They're employing robotics and AI. They're a company innovating on the hardware side to further increase the throughput of enzyme screening and design. So we definitely see them as the next generation Zymergen, which is now going public this year, to further increase the throughput of biological experiments using their hardware innovation in combination with AI and enzyme screening. So I am definitely excited by companies that fit into this space. And I think in terms of looking at the next generation, I uh, tend to bucket these companies into the type of innovation they bring. And the key parts are the software side, the hardware side, or even novel biology side to really meaningfully increase experimental throughput, enabling something that couldn't be done before, or new products, biological insights that couldn't be generated before, and apply to industrial biotech as, a, as an application sector, as an example there. Great. Thanks, Susan. Over the, the last few years, we've now been seeing you know, several VCs that were historically investing in software companies and have now become, let's say, bio-curious. And I'd love to hear your perspective being inside one of those funds, how those conversations evolve within when you're trying to educate folks that are primarily software investors into how to assess and invest in biotech companies or companies that are at the nexus of software and biotech? Great question. I think one of the key things to think about here is how do I convey the attractiveness of this biotech opportunity to some of my colleagues, right, who are not in this space? And this is something that I have given some thought about in terms of you know, what is the framework they operate under, right, as tech investors and, and kind of the innovation that you see in their realm? And how is biotech different compared to the type of innovation, the type of team, the type of return profile, even the life cycle here? Definitely, there's a lot of distinctions that one can point to. One of the key things that I talked about, especially in life sciences, is drug discovery, drug development is really not taught in school. So I can't really just rely on you know, someone that just you know, freshly come out of a PhD to know what they're doing through the entire drug development process. Oftentimes, gray hair is a plus, right? As a traditional biotech execs uh, often mentioned here. And then the life cycle is also longer here in the sense that you're not going to generate revenue unless you have partnership and that's your strategy until you're getting acquired at phase one or end of phase two, you go public that time. Even that, there's no really meaningful revenue. And a lot of that valuation is really dependent on the data and the science rather than peg on the revenue, like your, your typical 10 to 15x uh, SaaS revenue that we see in today's market just is not going to apply there. That becomes a conversation about, okay, how do we boost our rigor and diligence such that we can really truly understand the risk and reward here in terms of what, how far the science has been pushed along the discovery development cycle 
and whether or not we can capture a meaningful reward by going to this stage, projecting out kind of a longer time period of return there. And you know, with the funds that are going to the space, especially in drug discovery, drug development, I think these conversations are, are must-haves, right? To make sure that you align the, the different stakeholders in your fund to make sure they understand what it really needs, uh, what it takes to invest in biotech. I also want to caveat that it's an ongoing conversation, right? Because it's almost impossible to uh, you know, share everything about biotech and life sciences in a matter of like a few weeks or a month. New things come up and need to be communicated and aligned on. I think what's helpful from what I find is preemptively setting up a series of criteria that we can use, that we can agree on, and we'll use to evaluate companies, any new companies coming in. So with any predetermined criteria that we have talked about, any new investment that can be brought in, we can then align on how that company fit here to have a common playbook to start with. I find that to be very helpful. If you don't mind, I'd love to just ask a quick follow-up to that, which is, you know, you made an interesting comment about how having gray hair helps. And it's interesting. And I think I understand the sentiment in that, you know, building a biotechnology company is not something you do in school. You can't learn in a book. The manner by which you create values, both partnerships and getting drugs right to market, et cetera, which is... Um, you know, hard to do with that experience. But given that a measurable number of folks who are probably listening today are earlier on in their careers or aspire to be biotech founders, what advice or framework could you share for folks who don't have gray hair yet, but still aspire to meet unmet medical needs? Absolutely. I think it all starts with really what problem you want to solve and start from that perspective. And I, I think all of us have heard, you can spend a similar amount of time solving a trivial problem or more meaningful problem. So go after those big problems to solve. And after deciding on that, and then you have to think about how do you solve that problem, right? From my, maybe from an engineering mindset. And for those of us who are still very early stage in our careers, the benefit is that knowledge accumulates and you learn from other people with the knowledge that you don't have today, but then that makes you become a much more knowledgeable in that area later on. So I think my best advice, and this is coming from my more of a commercial background too, is talk to as many stakeholders, customers, people as you can about this problem. Learn about the context in which this problem have tried before to be solved and really what's the bottleneck there. And then what's a really powerful thing to do for any early stage entrepreneur is influencing and piecing together all the different right people that you think can help you and help the company succeed and solve that problem together. So with the power of a more diverse and integrated multidisciplinary team that are focused on this problem, it will make your life a lot easier. You can learn a lot from the other experts there. Great. Thanks, Susan. I'm curious to hear your perspective on what's been going on in the investment community around venture creation and the proliferation of these models, particularly in biotech, where VCs that were you know, traditional VCs are now starting to incubate and create their own companies. And would love to hear your thoughts on that trend as you see it. Yeah, I think there's more and more of that trend now that's happening because I feel that in today's market environment, everyone you know, is trying to go earlier and earlier because that's where most of the value and rewards are as later and later stage become more and more crowded. So we're seeing more of the public investors now going to private and the private investors going more and more early stage and the traditional biotech investors who used to just be able to read papers and then reach out to PIs and academic lab based on what they find, that is already an outdated model and that you are not going to be 
finding anything interesting because it would have been already been snatched up by other firms who have a closer relationship with these academic labs. I definitely think that this is a really good trend uh, for the community because these then academic centers and universities are getting more exposure into what industry looks like and what's needed to create successful companies because you have that guidance from industry hovering around you. Thanks for sharing. Eugene, I just have one more question for you before we wrap up today's podcast. So my question for you is, we've touched on a number of different really interesting topics, really important topics for the entirety of the biotech industry, spanning, you know, solving problems first. I think that's something that can't be emphasized enough, identifying the most important problems to solve and then relentlessly working towards solutions for those problems. And we touched on three different aspects of the current biotech industry that are really revolutionizing on all three of these aspects, which is the hardware, um, the software, and new biology, right? And integrating these to create the next generation of biotech companies. So tell us, do you mind sharing, you know, what you think is the core bottleneck that prevents us right now today from realizing the future of biotech? And how are we addressing that now? Or how do we need to address it going forward to make that future happen? So thank you for that question, Eric. I don't know if there's any particular bottlenecks uh, that you're thinking about in preventing us from accessing these cool technologies. In my opinion, all these technologies are getting increasingly available and increasingly advanced through research and development. I think what the industry needs is a combination of both people who are very technical in wielding these technologies and using these technologies, as well as those that have a more of a business mindset in applying these technologies to the right places and white spaces that's not being seen before. I'm talking more about the talent aspect of things where because you are talking about interdisciplinary, right? From the hardware, the software, and the biology, we need more people with more of an integrated interdisciplinary mindset that can piece different things together and make it something truly unique. It's not there today in the world. And I def- this is definitely a call for those that you know are thinking about doing something in the automated new AI biology space to talk to people in your counterpart in different labs, seeing that what are the things that you guys can combine forces to generate something that's truly novel and useful. And then talk to people who have some business background, application background, or people who are in different industries to see you know, whether they propose is going to be valuable to what they do every day before setting on a particular product you want to make. And it's been a pleasure talking to you guys and, and, and seeing how the, the field has progressed over the last few years. The field is progressing very rapidly. In the next three to four years, we could be talking something completely different, right? And what, one thing that I'm particularly excited about is this continuing trend of automation um, and computation uh, applied to life sciences. And I think we're going to see a lot more innovations across different applications in, in life sciences. And then another more of a long-term trend that I kind of finger in the sky hoping that will happen is democratization of biology using some of these computation and, and automation tools. Right now, it's only accessible to people in the lab, but there could be a world where you, know, you and me can do experiments in the comfort of our home you know, to create products that, that's meaningful to us in the future. So that's something I'm, I'm very bullish on. And if you guys see anything interesting in that space, definitely, definitely let me know. Well, yeah, Ezen, I think we can all agree that the importance that automation has to biology and drug development is increasing. And I think the role that technology will play in helping bring new medicines to market cannot be understated. So, you know, with that, we'd love to thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I think I speak for the entire team when I say that we'd love to have you on again soon to comment on the industry's progress in a few years. Further, I'd also love to thank the audience for joining us today. This is the first collaboration between Biotech 2050 and BIOS 
and we're really excited to have many more to come. So from both the BIOS and Biotech 2050 teams, I'd love to thank you for listening and hope you join us again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.